Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumlaw Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumlaw or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumlaw.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, good morning, Grumlaw fam. Uh, we are so excited that you are here today, that you would carve out a little bit of time and spend it here uh, with us here online. Also want to issue you a challenge if you are new around here to come back for at least three weeks. Uh, and the reason we say that is every single week is unique. Every week's a little bit different. And we think it's frankly just going to take a couple of weeks uh, for you to really get a feel of what we're all about here. And uh, as I often say, I'm, I'm bullish on the point that if you show up for three straight weeks, the Holy Spirit that is God in spirit will begin to show up and show off in your life in such a way that you'll want to keep coming back. Move closer to God and he will move closer to you. Uh, today we head into part eight of a 12-part series titled Controversial Jesus. Uh, but you all already knew that since you are such smart people. Uh, this is a series that has included topics such as the transgender movement, the sexual revolution, the gay community, abortion, marriage, divorce, mammon, you get the idea. We're just kind of going for it this fall. Uh, if you have not been here for every week of this series, I would highly encourage you to go back and at least uh, listen to part one which really laid the groundwork for the why behind this entire series. And uh, you can conveniently do that at grumlaw.com slash messages, uh, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. But in a nutshell, uh, here is why we are doing this series, well, why it is that, that God led us to dive headfirst into these topics. Uh, these are conversations uh, that are very much happening amongst friends and family and neighbors and coworkers. And, and what's become increasingly evident over the last couple of years is that if the church doesn't disciple you, the, the world sure will. Uh, so many of our convictions and our thoughts and our beliefs are, are being formed by what society tells us to think. And, and, and that's problematic for, for a number of different reasons, but perhaps most notable, uh, society or culture uh, gets it wrong, like, like often. And, and the truth is, come on, you, you and I get it wrong often. So what we all desperately need, and we talked about this at length in part one, what we all need is a filter outside of culture by which we can filter the desires of our heart, decipher between truth and lies, figure out what is right and what, what is wrong. If we don't have that filter, we'll always become a slave to whatever society tells us to believe. Now, to absolutely nobody's surprise who is watching right now, around here, uh, the filter that we would advocate that you use is this text that we call the, the Bible. Uh, perhaps you've uh, never heard the Bible described in these terms, but the Bible is a manual for life. Quite literally, a gift given to us that is the imperfect creation from God or our perfect creator. And, and keep in mind, God didn't have to give us this. Just like any earthly gift, it is just that, a gift. It, it's been given to us because he loves us that much. He, he's actually trying to protect us from, from us from our own poor decision-making. He's trying to keep regret and shame and embarrassment out of our lives. And in this way, as we've been discussing, God doesn't give commands because he loves rules. No, rather God gives commands because he loves you. Uh, my son, Oakley, for instance, uh, he officially actually becomes a prisk on Tuesday. We're pretty fired up about that. Uh, he's finally figuring out how to drive the, the power wheel. And before you judge me for being Warren Buffett, our power wheel was a gift. I know that those are like toys reserved for, for rich kids. Uh, now, previously, uh, like I think a lot of little kids, uh, we would just kind of crank that steering wheel in one direction and he would literally just drive 
in circles and honestly have a pretty good time doing so. But, but now he's actually understanding how to start, how to stop, how to steer. He's, he's gotten pretty good at operating the power wheel. And, and one of the things that he loves to do is actually cruise down to the end of the driveway, drive straight across the street and go over to the neighbor's house, uh, say hi to our neighbors, kind of show off his driving skills, pet, pet the neighbor's dog. And one of the things that Andrea and I have been trying to beat into his head is, right, y'all know this, look both ways. Oh, Oakley, don't just go ripping right out into the road. Look both ways for cars that may be coming from either direction. Now, now why have I been trying to instill that in my son? Because I'm restrictive? Because, because Shay's trying to be a control freak? Because I'm, I'm trying to keep Oakley from having a good time? No, it's because I'm trying to protect Oakley from, from what might cause him harm. Because I love my son, I put rules in place to keep him from making decisions that might undermine his future. And, and so it is with our loving creator. He, he's given us again this manual that when followed, it leads to that life that is marked by joy and peace and contentment, something that we are all searching after. But, but so often we'll take the bait that society offers us and say very nearsighted things like, God's being restrictive. God's trying to keep me from having a good time. God is being such a control freak. no. He's trying to keep you from getting hit by a car. He's looking further down the road than you and I have the ability to see. He, unlike even ourselves, he has our best interest in mind. And if there's something inside of you right now that, that, that resists that, that doubts that, remember, he would get off of his throne in heaven for you. He would very freely offer his one and only son in exchange for your sin problem. That's how desperately he wants to win you back. It's how much he loves you. It's how much he cares about you. Simply put, he is a loving father trying to protect his kids. And so I'm begging you to keep that at the top of your mind as we approach today's topic, uh, aptly titled Jesus and Women. Now, what's really, really interesting about this topic, and I'm so glad uh, that God gave me this this week, uh, is that depending on the time in history that you were born, it inevitably dictates which part of this message that you will find to be controversial. See, both the first century world, and in particular those in positions of power, that is the religious elite, those in governmental authority, and 21st century people, and in particular those living in first world countries like all of us, uh, they were taken aback, are taken aback by Jesus' teachings in regards to women's status and, and gender hierarchy. Now, now, those living in the first century would have been wildly offended by Jesus' extraordinary elevation of women, but yet they would have applauded the very clear lines, the distinctions that Jesus would draw in regards to male and female roles. Conversely, the average 21st century American would applaud Jesus's efforts to elevate women and yet be completely taken aback by the gender hierarchy that he so clearly draws. This obviously speaks uh, further to how society is constantly changing and we, again, desperately need that filter outside of culture to appeal to. And, and what better filter particularly in regards to today's topic than, than scripture. Again, this text that we call the Bible. A after all, as we are reminded in the book of Genesis, this is the very first book of the Bible. Many of you maybe don't know this, uh, that the Bible is actually a collection of 66 smaller books uh, collected and put together to form this cohesive text, again, that we call the Bible. But in Genesis chapter one, uh, again, the very first chapter, it says, so God created human beings, that's you and I, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, so it stands to reason that if God created us, 
and, and went actually out of his way to quite literally place a part of himself inside of us. That, that's the whole divinity thing. He, he placed something divine in each of us. That Then maybe we ought to listen to the loving counsel of our creator as it relates to male and female, and in particular, the distinction between those roles. Now, let me begin by uh, starting with what may appear to some uh, to be a rather bold statement. I promise this is not hyperbole. Uh, I genuinely believe this, and in fact, it's quite difficult to dispute. Uh, Jesus did more for the rights, dignity, and status of women than any other person in human history. Uh, I've joked around before, <laughs> and I'm not actually kidding, uh, that I think every woman should be a follower of Jesus by virtue of what he did for women. A- at a time in history when women had no voice, n- no status, that they-, they were regarded as not much more than a choice piece of livestock, Jesus comes along and, and he flips the patriarchy on its head. As historian Tom Holland, who, by the way, uh, despite growing up in the Anglican church, in his adult life, he disavowed belief in the existence of God, uh, only to later write an article, and I admire his humility, uh, titled, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. He notes in his seminal work, uh, a text called Dominion, that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A a A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. This principle is initially birthed out of the creation account of which we just briefly touched on. Uh, Women, rather than being seen as inferior to men, are equally made in God's image. And then then Jesus steps onto the scene and and only affirms, doubles down, reaffirms this. Uh, Let me reiterate. If we could read the gospels, that is the biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, through first century eyes, Jesus's treatment of women would knock us to our knees. Uh, I want to provide us with just a handful of examples. Uh, Some of you probably don't know this. Uh, Jesus's longest recorded conversation with any person is actually with a Samaritan woman. Uh, That's a whole other point of contention right there. Very simply put, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. So the idea uh, that a Jewish rabbi uh, would have a conversation with any Samaritan, let let alone a woman, uh, would have been quite scandalous, again, to that first century audience. Jesus' longest recorded conversation with any person, again, is with a Samaritan woman uh, who has less than a stellar reputation. Uh, So shocking that even Jesus' disciples very much objected. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 27, at the end of this long conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, it says that just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her or why are you talking to her? Uh, On another occasion, Uh, Jesus is dining at a Pharisee's home, a very religious uh, man. Uh, When a sinful woman crashes the party, uh, she proceeds to weep on Jesus's feet, wipe her tears with her hair, and actually kiss his feet. Uh, The very religious man is absolutely appalled, uh, aghast that Jesus would allow this to take place. And Jesus only affirms her actions, concluding by declaring to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Uh, On yet another occasion, Jesus is on his way actually to heal a 12-year-old girl, uh, but he takes a bit of a detour to heal another woman who has been plagued with persistence 
persistent bleeding for 12 years. Uh, this would be a problem at any point in history, uh, but an even bigger problem at this point in history when if you came into contact with human blood, uh, you were deemed ceremonially unclean, which meant that you could not enter the temple, which meant that you could not be close to God. So not only were you cut off from people, you were cut off from God. Uh, and eventually, uh, Jesus goes out of way to, to commend her faith, saying, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Whether little girls or prostitutes, whether despised foreigners or women made unclean by blood, whether they were married or single, sick or disabled, Jesus made time for women and treated them with care, respect, and dignity at a time in history where this was shocking, even appalling. At a time in history where intentionally elevating the status of women might very well cost you yours. And I actually think the most glaring example of this comes about in actually all four gospel accounts, that is again, the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, where women are the first to bear witness to Jesus's resurrection. And mind you, uh, if we don't have the resurrection of Jesus, we don't really have a Jesus whom is worthy of talking about. In John chapter 20, again, one of those four gospel accounts, Mary, Jesus said, again, appearing first to a woman post his resurrection, she turned to him and cried out, Rabbi which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers. Go tell them about this and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I will remind us again that every gospel account records that a woman was the first witness to his resurrection, despite the fact that the testimony of a woman at this point in history was completely and utterly worthless. And what theologians and historians have aptly pointed out in an ironic twist is that this only further adds to the credibility of the gospel accounts. And here's why. If the gospel accounts were fiction, if these were made up tales to, to dupe people for generations into believing in Jesus, nobody would have wrote the story this way. Because both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have all known that writing in a woman as such a critical part of the account would have actually served to undermine the testimony of Jesus. But clearly by this point, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had seen enough through Jesus's actions that women were an integral part of his ministry and they chose to honor that in their biographical accounts of, of his life. Now, up to this point in the message, uh, our modern ears have detected nothing that would be labeled as controversial, right? I mean, both those inside and outside the church, we can get on board with this Jesus, the Jesus that did more for the rights, dignity, and status of women than any other person in human history. That Jesus is universally applauded in our first world, 21st century culture. But, but remember, wildly controversial to that first century audience. What, what, what we applaud, they renounced. So, so let's move to the latter half of this message that I will remind us will absolutely be labeled as some to be controversial uh, to our 21st century ears. But keep in mind, uh, as we dive into this, the same Jesus who advocated for women also taught all of what I'm about to share right now. As followers of Jesus, uh, we don't get to pick and choose our way through this. It is very much an all or nothing approach. Furthermore, it's really important for us to understand that God offers us this counsel out of his goodness. It isn't arbitrary. It's not one way to run things. It is the creator's prescribed order for what he created. And so simply put, go against the grain and you'll get splinters. 
And I don't think I need to work very hard to convince you of that. We live in a society uh, that has had a historic departure from biblical created gender roles. And as the saying goes, uh, we are living with the results. Uh, Most notably, and I address this in part three, uh, titled Jesus and the Sexual Revolution, uh, most notably fatherlessness, which is the main contributor to crime, homelessness, unwed pregnancy, poverty, and future fatherlessness. We're going against the grain and we have the splinters to prove it. We have defied the biblical created order in regards to the distinctions between men and women. And, and guess what? It's, uh, it's not going very well. And, and again, I, I think you know this. It's at least partially why, why you are sitting and watching this today. So here is the primary text that we're going to attempt to unpack this morning, or at least partly unpack. And admittedly, uh, we don't have time to do it complete justice. But we find this text. Uh, in a letter that Paul wrote uh, to the early Christian church in Ephesus. So as I will often remind us, this is far, uh, far from a new topic. Uh, Here it says, and it's speaking specifically here to married couples talking to husband and wife. Ephesians 5, 21 to 30. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Now, when the Bible teaches, uh, or I could say, when the creator tells the creation how this is supposed to go, that that men and women fulfill different roles in relationship to each other, it, it bases, this is really important, it bases this differentiation not on temporary cultural norms, but, but, but rather on permanent facts of creation. Here's what I'm trying to get at. It, differentiated roles were corrupted, not created by the fall. Say that one more time. Differentiated roles were corrupted, not created by the fall. And if you're not familiar with that term, the fall, that would refer to uh, when we as human beings uh, decided to rebel against the creator, when we sinned, when we looked at God and said, we don't really trust that your way is good, so we're gonna try and and do things our way. That they were created by God. It's also worth noting uh, that even if you are not married, these roles still apply to your life. And admittedly, Uh, I left a lot unturned this morning in in regard to widows, widowers, uh, and single people. Uh, Yes, they are applied differently in marriage, but defined gender roles apply outside marriage relationships as well. Uh, So all you single people, widows, widowers, uh, please do not zone out uh, for what I'm about to share here next. Uh, Back to verses 21 and 22. There it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's talking to both the man and the woman. And, And then, the wives get singled out. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
Uh, now, it's worth noting that men are big fans of this verse. <laughs> but what's sort of interesting is that we, when I say we, I'm talking about men, we typically just pull out the, this one verse, that is verse 22, where it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. We pull that out in isolation and, and we kind of ignore what comes right before it and what immediately follows it. And, and we're gonna go more on that here in just a minute. Now, now the key word in this passage is this word submit uh, or submission. Uh, there's something inside of us, and, and I, I get this, uh, that immediately resists a passage like this because the word submission does not carry a particularly positive connotation in our culture. Uh, I think, honestly, most of us immediately think of abusive relationships where one party is domineering, manipulative, uh, and exclusively carries all of the power. Uh, or we frankly, I don't know why this comes into my mind, we think about a dog and its owner. To, to just clear the deck, this is not what scripture is advocating. More literally translated from the original Greek, and this honestly you probably guess as much, uh, this word means to place under or to subject to. Now in our very independent autonomy on a pedestal, you do you and I'll do me society, this type of language, again, it doesn't sit very well. But, but I want you to consider what it says just a couple of verses later, specifically in verse 24. It says there, now as the church submits, there's our word again, submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in, in everything. As the church submits to Christ. Now, now when the writer here says church, uh, it's not talking about a building. He's talking about followers of Jesus. He's talking about people, the collective community of Jesus followers for, for all time. As followers of Jesus, and this isn't meant to be a trick question, is submitting to Christ a burden or, or does it spell freedom? Well, the world would tell you, as we've already covered, that it's restrictive. Submitting to Christ is, is, is him being controlling. But, but again, we already talked about that. It's God trying to protect us. So, submitting to Christ, and I'll, I'll just speak for myself for a moment, it, it has led to the most meaningful, purpose-filled, joy-filled life imaginable. I have not submitted to Christ out of obligation or, or, or this begrudging rule following, but rather I recognize that, that Jesus has my best interest in mind. He, he's ultimately trying to lead me to the better life that is waiting for me if I would just submit to him. This is so much more than do it because the Bible says so. That just ends up being, and many of you have, have quite literally lived into this, that just ends up being blind rule following that's devoid of joy and purpose. S submitting to Christ isn't only right, it's good. It's not only valid, it's valuable. It's not only accurate, it's admirable. It's God going, I really do have your best interest in mind, so come, follow me, submit to me, and there you will find freedom which admittedly we, we don't normally think about in, in those terms, but uh, let me help us think about it by, by looking at it from this angle. Uh, imagine two people uh, jump from a plane and, and experience the thrilling freedom from, from free falling back down to earth. But, but, but there is a big difference between the two people. Uh, one has a rather cumbersome, annoying parachute strapped to their back and, and the other doesn't. Th th that person is, is free from that burden. But, but quick question, which person is more free? The person without the parachute feels free, even freer since they don't feel the constraints of those annoying straps, but, 
But that person isn't actually free, right? That, that person is in bondage to the force of gravity and to the deception that all is well because you feel unencumbered. This false sense of freedom is in fact bondage to calamity, which is sure to happen after a fleeting moment of pleasure. So, so, so here's the beauty, church. Choose your freedom. Choose your freedom. The, the, the false sense of freedom that the world offers, which is fleeting, doesn't last long, and eventually leads to, frankly, disaster, or the true freedom that takes God's reality and God's purpose for creation into account and seeks to fit smoothly into God's design, where your desires are renewed to fit in with God's perfect will. That the greatest freedom is found in being so changed by God's spirit that you can do what you love to do and know that it conforms to the design of God and leads to life and glory. So just as the church submits to Christ, so the wife submits to her husband. And as your husband submits to Christ, as he is conformed more and more into the image of Christ, following his lead isn't seen as a chore, but rather, again, it is an invitation to freedom, an invitation into God's design. So, so it goes without saying, men, uh, we got to have a little talk. Be a man who is worthy of being submitted to. Lead your homes. Women, the call to submit to your husband is, is no small task. I recognize that. But, but the call of a man is, dare I say it, a, a far taller order. Consider what is said to, to the men, to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Men, very practically, this means placing the needs of your wife above your own. It, it means when every bone in your body says to power up, you choose to, to power down. You, in fact, lead like, like Christ led. And, and what did Christ do? He, he served, right? He, he sacrificed. He leveraged his authority for the benefit of those under his authority. This is our call as, as men. We are called to love our wives as we love our own bodies. So we don't get to be nitpicky or condescending or belittling. We don't treat our wives like, like children because we know we wouldn't want to be treated that way. Husbands, very simply put, we are called to lead in such a way that we are easy to follow. And, and let me remind us that responsibility ultimately falls on us to lead our homes. You might recall in the garden, when Adam and Eve decided to rebel, Eve was the one who took the first bite. She might have sinned first in the garden, but, but who did God go to first? Adam, right? So it is in our homes. If I could speak very candidly, in my opinion, the rise of feminism and in particular a tearing down of male roles in our culture has less to do with women who are dead set on tearing down the patriarchy and more to do with men who don't lead, men who won't lead, men who, who are not worthy of being followed. And so men who, who call Grumlaw their church home, 
I'm begging you, spend more time in prayer. Prioritize your quiet time with Jesus. That that, that Jesus is, is the most important relationship in your life because you're smart enough to know that every other relationship takes its cues from that one. Be more intentional, be more thoughtful. But we're called to live a disciplined and an ordered life. Lay down your life for your bride as Christ laid down his life for the church. Now, now this begs the question, I want to quickly address this of, okay, what if I'm a single mom? Or what if my husband refuses to lead our home in particular spiritually? In those instances, women are absolutely called to step into that role, but not in a way that belittles or disrespects. You do so in a way that, that is honoring and lifts up rather than tears down. So, so often in marriages and parenting and relationships, that individual rises or falls based on the level of honor and dignity that you bestow upon them, whether they are present or not. P- pull them up. I, I got to tie a bow on this, and admittedly, <laughs> this feels very abrupt. Uh, we could have very easily, again, as I said earlier, done a month uh, just on this topic. Uh, the Jesus-loving man is called to passionately pursue Jesus by prioritizing his daily encounter and, and community with other followers of Jesus. It's the most important relationship in your life because every other relationship in your life takes its cues from that. The Jesus-loving man is called to serve and sacrifice for his wife and in turn show Jesus to her. It's not merely about saying the right things. It's about showing and modeling this. You model Christ in your home by how you serve, by how you sacrifice. When you said, I do, you decided to forever put the needs of another human being ahead of your own. The Jesus-loving man is called to draw out the strengths of his wife and children. Uh, This specifically speaks to, again, not being nitpicky not being condescending. You bring out the best in the people in in, in your life. The Jesus-loving man is called to show initiative in disciplining their children. Uh, This is not merely left to the man, but uh, very simply, when you read scripture, it's impossible to come to any other conclusion than the man uh, in the original created order is is supposed to take the lead in this area. That the Jesus-loving man is called to repentance, humility, and risk-taking, and this cannot be overstated because usually men are just not very good at this. Uh, We're called to say sorry sometimes. We are called to humbly lead. We are called to admit uh, when we are wrong. We are called to a life that is marked by repentance, where we don't just merely say sorry, we change our our, our actions in accordance with those areas with where we have screwed up. But it also doesn't mean that in the future, we're shy about taking bold steps. We, again, as followers of Jesus, as men in particular, are called to take the lead in following the promptings of the Holy Spirit uh, and living lives in accordance uh, with what is dictated to us in this text. Uh, and then lastly, the Jesus-loving man is called to provide and protect. Uh, that is one of our primary roles as, as the head of household uh, is to provide and protect for our families. Somebody busts into your house, you don't send your wife down the stairs with a nine iron. That is, that's on you. All right. Uh, the Jesus-loving woman is called to passionately pursue Jesus by prioritizing her daily encounter and community with other followers of Jesus. It's not merely the call of the man. It is the call of the couple to be united on that front. Uh, the Jesus-loving woman is called to submit to the leadership of her husband and, and honor him in all situations. It doesn't mean that you can never disagree, but you can disagree while still showing honor. 
Uh, and lastly, the Jesus-loving woman is called to make career decisions not based on secular trends or upward lifestyle expect- expectations, but rather, where will I have the greatest impact for Christ? For seasons, uh, that might be being a homemaker and staying at home with the kids. For seasons, that might be stepping into corporate America. Uh, for seasons, that might be le- more greatly leveraging your time uh, in the local church. But, but asking that question, where will I have the greatest impact for Christ? Uh, church, let me wrap it up by saying this. One sex is not superior to another. If we made a strengths and weaknesses chart uh, for men and women and we added a numerical value for each strength and we subtracted a numerical value for each weakness, that the score would come out exactly the same. The beauty lies in the idea that if you were to lay those charts on top of one another, they become a perfect complement to one another which was what God's idea was when he brought man and woman together. Biblical headship for the husband is the divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Biblical submission for the wife is the divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. When we follow his plan, we are most satisfied and he is most glorified. Amen.